Thank you, Gary. It's really neat to, as you're reading through the Bible, to note how many of those Old Testament predictions about Jesus were fulfilled and then quoted in the New Testament. So Christ said, as Gary mentioned, search the scriptures, they talk about me. And opening all of the scriptures, he showed them the things of himself. Quite a few of those verses Gary read are quoted in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to continue our worship and study by continuing a series I started in the spring called Rooted in the Faith. Now, let me kind of give you the big picture here. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that Christians are not to gather together just to talk about what they think, but what God says in the Bible. The Bible calls pastors to preach and proclaim the whole counsel of God, teach the Bible. So if you've been here for a while, you know that most of the time we'll go verse by verse through books of the Bible. I think that's the best way to learn the Bible. Don't just jump around like a Ouija board, but read the Bible. Take a book. We talk about study Bibles. Get the background and just start reading through and, and read it in units. Don't just read a verse today and a day tomorrow. But, but the other thing that sort of helps you to study the Bible is, is to have sort of an overview of the major, what we call the doctrines of the Bible. In other words, the Bible's not written like a car manual. So if I go, oh, I need to look up stuff about the dashboard lights. That's all in the same place. Whereas if I wanted to say, hey, what does the Bible say about the devil? There's not like one section of the Bible that has an outline of all the verses about the devil. So you would have to look at Genesis and Exodus and all the different passages. And so throughout the history of the church, what Christians have done is they've taken these major teachings of the Bible and, and systematized them, put them into sort of units so you could go, okay, what does the Bible teach about God? What does the Bible teach about angels and the devil? What does the Bible teach about the future, like the tribulation? And what does the Bible teach about heaven and hell? What does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit? What does the Bible teach about salvation? So these are called doctrines. And so when, when the apostles taught, they both taught the Old Testament doctrines and then the New Testament doctrines that the Lord Jesus revealed to them. So it's really important for all Christians to be rooted and grounded in the major doctrines of the Christian faith. If not, Satan's going to slaughter you. You're going to be tossed around. You won't have any idea what you believe. And so what we try to do is from time to time step back and, and do the big picture. And so if you were to, to say, all right, what are the main themes of the Bible? Well, you could debate maybe seven, maybe ten of them. Throughout the history of the church, traditionally theologians have looked at the doctrine of the Bible. How did we get the Bible? How do we know the Bible is inspired of God? Why is our Bible different from the Roman Catholic Bible? And we went through that in the fall and, or in the um, winter when we were at Cairn. And those sermons are available online. But today we're going to begin the second doctrine in the, in the Rooted in the Faith series called the Doctrine of God. In other words, it's kind of funny to almost even ask that question. What does the Bible teach about God? But the reality is, for many of us, we're either going to have to go, well, a lot of the things I believed about God were wrong. A lot of the things I believed about God were not really clear or unbalanced. And so everybody has a, a thought about God. Some people don't believe in him. In fact, just this week when I was preaching up in Maine, there's a shop in the town where I, where I go, and I've been building a relationship with the husband and wife there for years. And so I said to one of the owners, I said, Penny, when am I going to see you in church? She goes, oh, you'll never, never see me in church. I said, why? She goes, I hate religion. 
I go, wow, you hate it? I said, did you have a bad experience? Why do you hate it? She goes, no, I just never believed it. Matter of fact, she said, people used to think I was raised by a pirate. <laughs> she goes, in fact, I can't understand how intelligent people would believe in God and believe that stuff. I said, well, Penny, we're all trying to look around at the evidence of what's going on. Where do you believe? Where do you think we came from? She says, aliens. How <laughs> oh, is it me, right? I'm not intelligent because I believe the Bible. So it's important for us to talk about what do we know that the Bible teaches about God. So let's start with this. A study of God, if you were to, if you were to, to say, all right, can I just kind of think through what the Bible teaches about God? It includes these four subjects. Now, we're not going to cover all of them in detail, but you should have a framework for them, and we can provide you with plenty of books and materials, Bible study stuff to go deeper in them. So our ushers have Bibles. If any of you don't have a Bible, they're coming now. Um, just raise your hand. You're welcome to keep the Bible. Um, I'd encourage you to have a pen today because we're going to be jumping around. You want to write some verses down. These slides will be available online for you to study. But even if you've been a Christian a long time, you're like, okay, I got the big picture here. These are the type of things that you should be teaching other people. These are the things that you should teach your children. The Bible teaches us that we are to teach others. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says, by this time, all of you should be teachers. But he said to the Christians there, you have need again for somebody to teach you the very basics all over again. So let's make sure that we're grounded in the, the, the teachings about God. The second thing we're going to talk about is his attributes. What is he like? Third, his names. It's fascinating. God has chosen to reveal himself in a variety of Old Testament, New Testament names. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Tzidkenu, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Lamb of God, all kinds of interesting names. And then finally, this God that we learn about in the Bible his triunity. What does it mean? People say, there's no such thing as a trinity. That's not even in the Bible. And so why do Christians believe that God is one God in three persons? So let's pray, and then I trust that God's powerful word will, will speak to you and, and awaken and, and cause us all to grow. Lord, thank you so much that we're going to begin a study about God. And we do so with humility and fear and trembling because you're awesome. And Lord, there's nothing like you. To whom shall we compare you? So may we be stunned and amazed at who you are. And may we, as we come to know you and love you, proclaim you and trust you and obey you and let the world know that from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised, worshiped, and obeyed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's start with a discussion of the existence of God. How many times do you run into somebody and say, ah, I don't believe in God? Or I never saw him. If he wants me to believe in him, he needs to come down here. So the Bible teaches in, in numerous passages that it's, it's possible to know God exists without ever seeing him. Two ways, internally and externally. So God has left fingerprints about himself in the universe and stamped his impression inside of people. So technically what we're going to see in the Bible is for anyone to call themselves an atheist is inexcusable. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, truly there's no such thing as an atheist, just a professing atheist who's pushing back against the truth. So, if you're an atheist this morning, I'm not meaning to offend you, but I want you to think about this. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, as Paul says, I want to preach the gospel, that certain things make God mad. Even that, we're like, oh, God gets mad. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, we get this a little bit. If, if, if somebody says, he did it, you're like, I did not. It makes you mad when someone lies, right? You're suppressing the truth. But think about how God feels when he created the entire universe and earth and people, and most of the people down here are just doing whatever they want. They're not all blaspheming God. They're just doing whatever they want. They're going against the truth of who created us and what we're here for. And so the reason God gets so upset is because the Bible says men are suppressing the truth, like whack-a-mole down at the beach. People don't want to acknowledge there's a God because they know the implications. If I believe in God, then he's my creator and I have to answer to him. <clears throat> and I don't like that. So notice this. First of all, God says that which is known about God is evident within them. So you might think of it this way. Implanted in the very being of all humans is an intrinsic awareness that there's a God. Okay? So even though they deny it, I never believe in God. You can say it all you want. But I'm going with God. He says inside people is an internal awareness that he exists. Period. Okay? Now whether or not they keep pressing the delete button to try to get that off their screensaver, I know what God says. He's made it evident within them. So they can protest long and loud. But I, I know that God has said, hey, I have made myself aware to them. <clears throat> now, over time, Romans 1 says, certain men, because they don't want God in their knowledge, God gives them over to a depraved mind. So if someone says, I really don't believe in him. But in addition to that, even if they say, I don't have any inner sense that there's a God, then God says, all right, then let's step outside of yourself and look around. <clears throat> see these trees, see these skies, see these mountains, see this ocean, see the planets and the stars. There's plenty of evidence. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, oh, thank you so much, Marge, have been clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So think about, you know, this isn't all that hard to, to grasp. We all love CSI and crime stuff. Imagine somebody who... The evidence had his DNA, his fingerprints, his footprints, his tire tracks at the scene of the crime, hair, follicles, everything. And then he says, because you didn't see it, you can't say I did it, right? There are clues and evidences that can give us clear conclusions. And basically God's saying, look, I haven't shown up down here and said, here I am. But for you to look around at my creation... My power is clearly known. It's, it's, it's obvious. And therefore, it's inexcusable, having looked at my creation, to deny me. So, it's, so I have to get a fundamental idea that people out there who say there's no God, they're not just poor, innocent people who never saw him. They're deliberate rebels. Now, the interesting thing is that God created us in such a different way purpose for the way that most people live. Most people just ignore God. It's not like they hate him externally. They just ignore him, right? Hey, I don't bother the man upstairs. He doesn't bother me. But that in itself offends God. That in itself brings anger to God because we're creatures who were designed to serve and worship and thank him and obey him, not just to jump out of bed, to run to our food like dogs and eat it and to ignore him. So the Bible says, even though men knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Well, here's how they changed the story. They became futile in their speculations. 
So every time somebody comes up with a new idea about God, well, I like to think of God as uh, the force out there or whatever. God's going, stop talking, please. Because you're just speculating, even though the truth about me is evident. And as a result, all of us, left to ourselves, our foolish heart becomes more and more darkened. Because of our sinful minds that we inherited from Adam, our glasses are dirty as we, as we look around and develop a worldview. Why am I here? Who is God? So, in light of that, because of my human sinfulness, mankind has distorted what can be known about God and has failed to live in a way that God intends for people to live. So, all over the planet, there are people worshiping, and then in some countries where we're far more progressive and advanced, there are people who are denying the existence of God, but it's the same problem. And at the end of the day, it's still a willful choice. You and I and every person on this planet has to make a choice. Will I believe in God or will I deny God? It's not like you can prove to someone there's a God. But we're looking at external and internal evidence and saying, hey, God's out there. But ultimately, this is why I say this. So I could go to public school and they tell me 50 billion years ago, um, there was eternal matter. We don't know where it came from and there was a bang or whatever. And so that explains why we're here. And people go, now that's the facts, that's science. But then religion, you can, we can tell you the, the, the Bible stories, the myths. And I'm going, please, that's nonsense. Nobody can prove where we came from, and nobody can prove there's a God, okay? But is it unreasonable to go, there's a lot of problems with this idea of evolution. It doesn't answer where matter came from. There's just a lot of things. It doesn't have transitional fossils. Or I read the Bible and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. What am I doing here? By faith, I believe that what God said is how we got here. He spoke the universe into existence. And the things which are seen, planet earth, mountains, stars, you know, the planets, are not made out of things which are visible. God didn't have eternal matter and just go, let's change it around. He went, let it be. And, he, and I believe that. But in addition to that, the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists. And so at some point in your life, if you were raised with any exposure to, to the Bible, you had to make a choice. Is there really a being out there that I can actually say, dear God, I believe in you? And having said that, if you do believe in God... That's just the beginning point. I can assure you the devil is absolutely 100% convinced in the existence of God. He doesn't walk around going, gee, I wonder, wonder if there is a God. That's just a starting point. And I'm going to assume that maybe some of you, especially if you're a young person, it's okay for you to question and go, is this stuff real? And my parents just brainwashing me because you're going to have a lot of people out there telling you, ah, I can't believe you believe that old-fashioned stuff. And you can look for yourselves and say, you know what? I don't have to be a dumbbell and take my brains out to believe in God. But if the Bible teaches that he exists and that's credible to go, all right, I believe in God, then of course I'm going to ask the next question. What's he like? What is God like? And so the Bible teaches that God exists. Oh, my bad. And it tells us what he's like. And so a study of God involves a study of what we call his attributes, his qualities. And this shouldn't be like, rocket science is like 
You come home and you tell mom, hey, I met uh, this new guy or this new girl. Well, what are they like? Oh, he's funny. He's slightly witty, charming. He's wealthy. He comes from a lovely family. We describe attributes and then we're fascinated as we come to know someone and we're texting them, how was your day? No, you hang up. You hang up. And I'm going, give me the phone. I'll hang up. Stop it, right? <laughs> we're all excited about getting to know someone. Well, that's not that hard to understand that God himself possesses attributes. But the difference is every attribute of God that we learn about in the Bible, he possesses to an infinite degree. So God's not slightly smart. He's infinitely smart. He's not slightly holy. He's infinitely holy. So some theologians call his attributes his perfections. But as we begin to think about his perfections, like, okay, what does the Bible teach about God? It's very dangerous because as humans, we think we're way smarter than we are. When it comes to a knowledge of God, think of yours and my brain as a little Tandy or Radio Shack computer with a tiny little hard drive, right? Think of God as this infinite, exhaustive, inexhaustible being who's like, I couldn't even download a megabyte of anything into your mind or it would explode. The Bible says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts. God is incomprehensible. He's unable to be fully understood. Sometimes people, when they're dating, they'll say, you know, I decided it wasn't going to work out. He's a little boring. I kind of have him figured out, right? Trust me, that'll never happen with God. His greatness is unsearchable. No matter what we think about God, we don't even have a clue how much inexhaustibly we're falling short. J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. No matter what I think about God, he's way bigger than that. And his inexhaustible attributes are something that he has privileged us to, in a limited degree, get to know in an ongoing, progressive way. And that's kind of cool to think about because even though I can't fully understand him, I can, first of all, come to know him. And then secondly, I can spend the rest of my life growing in my knowledge of him and my relationship with him. Now, I want to start with that phrase, come to know him. Because we use that, that phrase often without even thinking about it. In fact, if you noticed when Gary gave communion, he said, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, right? So what does that mean to know the Lord? If you're here and you don't know the Lord. Well, it's kind of like Elf, right? If you saw Elf having been raised by Santa, he freaked out when he saw Santa at the department store, right? He goes, Santa, I know him, right? And in many ways, for a lot of people, they, they, they misconstrue the idea of knowing about God and knowing God. To know that God exists is not the same as coming to know him. The Bible uses the phrase coming to know God to describe a conversion experience. We're not born knowing God. No one's born knowing God. They're born knowing about God. So in 1 John, it talks about the change of heart that happens when we come to know God, when we, when we have our eyes open and we trust him and we're forgiven of our sins and born again. God says there will be a change in the way you live if you've come to know God. So in 1 John, it actually says this. If anyone says, I have come to know him, but they don't try to keep his commandments, they're a liar. The truth isn't in them. So it might be helpful for you to ask the question, can I, 
Can I at least consider that somewhere in my life I've come to know the Lord? You don't need to know when, but you ought to know that you know him personally, that Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. He's not just a statue or a picture that you remember in Sunday school, that, that you've trusted him and you talked to him and you've experienced him in some way. But the danger is there's a difference between coming to know him and continuing to know him. This doesn't stop when you get saved, like, oh yeah, now I know God. The rest of our lives, we have this joyful privilege of getting to know him better. In fact, Jesus described eternal life. He said, Father, I gave them eternal life, which is to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, your son, whom you sent. So first of all, I want to remind all of you, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, to, to make it your desire and your prayer to know God better. In Colossians 1, Paul actually prayed for his converts that he was discipling. He said, I pray that you'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will, but you will increase in the knowledge of God. And as we look around and we meet older people in the community who have known the Lord for a long time, they have a deep, rich confidence in him, many of them, because they've walked with him and grown in their understanding of him. In fact, the apostle John, when he wrote to, to the disciples that he was ministering to, he said, I write to you, fathers, because you have known God. You've known him from the beginning. So, as we continue this study, we think about, wow, this is cool. I get to know this awesome God better and better and experience him and have a relationship with him and come to trust him and rely on him. Now, it makes sense as we start this, this study of his attributes to, to remember that there's a reason why God says, don't make an image of me. Just don't go there. Don't even try to represent me. Who are you going to, how are you going to do that? Remember the story I told you, the little girl, she's in real bright little thing. She's in Sunday school, just a tiny kid. And she's drawing a picture in the Sunday school. The teacher says, hey, what are you drawing there? She says, oh, drawing a picture of God. The teacher says, well, um, nobody knows what God looks like. She says, they will in a minute. <laughs> and the problem is, when we try to liken God to some image or, you know, God's kind of like an operator or something, we fail to, 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 to give him the, the magnitude of his greatness that he deserves. So he says in Isaiah, or Isaiah says, to whom will you liken God, or, or with what likeness will you compare him? So God sort of pokes fun at the fact that all over this planet, even though it angers him, he goes, think about this. You make something with your hands, and then you worship it as though it's God. He goes, that's kind of short-sighted. He says, think of an idol, a craftsman. He, he casts a a goldsmith plates it with gold, a silversmith fashions it. If you can't afford that, you select a tree that doesn't rot. You seek out a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol. And now you're going to bow down to a tree or to a statue. And, and that's really sad. All over this universe, people are, are bowing down to trees and statues and worshiping the sun. And, and we're like, yeah, well, they're, they're not progressive like us. No, we just worship one another. We worship humanity and we're just as idolatrous. It's just we don't have statues in the same way in American culture. So God says, excuse me, but do you not know? Haven't you heard? Hasn't anyone told you? Hasn't it been declared to you from the beginning? Haven't you understood this, that from the foundations of the earth, when this thing I first spoken into existence, that God sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers? Did he just call me a grasshopper? <laughs> yep. 
from time to time, God will use analogies like that. Like, you know, before you kind of get too high of a view of yourself, know who I am. You get out of the shower, you just pull the curtain. God stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So then he asks this question. So uh, to whom then will you liken me? that I will be his equal. It's sort of like God goes, there's only two categories. There's me and everything else. Creator and then creation. So please don't try to grab something out of creation and liken me to it. That drags God down. So, how do I think of God and his attributes? Throughout history, some have found it helpful I have mixed opinions of this, but some have found it helpful to think of the attributes that, that God shares with us and the ones that he doesn't share with us. In other words, when God made us, the Bible says, let us make man in our image. So we would expect there are certain things about people that are supposed to reflect the image of God. A couple problems with that. One is when Adam sinned, the image of God was deeply distorted. Nevertheless, Humans, because of being made in the image of God, can still in small ways reflect some of God's attributes. But some of his attributes, he doesn't share with us. We don't have any sense of these attributes. And so they're called incommunicable and communicable. Now, a full study would include far more than I'm going to do. So this is just an overview. This is something to get you thinking, to, to remind you to study and think about God as you're reading your Bible and you come across something that the Bible teaches about God, to think about that, to pray about that, to expand your view of God and believe what the Bible says. So we're going to just talk about two of these attributes that he doesn't share. The first one theologians call self-existence or his independence. He doesn't need or depend on his creation for anything. And the reason that one's helpful to think about is a lot of people have brought God down to, to this low view of him that he created the universe because he needed something to do, that he was kind of bored, you know, hanging around for eternity. That's a long time. So he kind of looks at Jesus and goes, let's make some little friends, you know. It, it would be cool. You want to, you like, play world and have a little drama stage? We have to understand something. God doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us. He didn't, gee... Uh, I, I don't know what to do. In fact, we have to think bigger about God. Here's an example when people go, the Bible says God is rich. How rich is he? He owns everything, the whole universe. And I go, oh, that's fascinating. So before creation then, he must have been really poor, huh? He's like, gee, I don't have two nickels to rub together. So don't think of God's riches as because he created us, now he's rich, Right? Nor should we think of him as creating us because he needed us. So, so in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul quotes the Old Testament. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? It's, it's comical, right? Like God's going to knock on your door and say, hey, you got a minute. I just need somebody to bounce my thoughts off. Like, just, just in that, I'm kind of stuck here. Or imagine God hitting you up for a loan. Hey, listen, you know, I'm going to get paid Friday. Could you just loan me something? So, so this this idea that God is independent of his creatures is important. It's not, a, you know, there's a reason why people say it's not about us, right? For from him, right, so he's the source of everything. Through him, he's the one that's keeping us all together. 
and to him, he's a goal of everything or all things. So to him be the glory forever and ever. Now, one thing that I want you to think about is as you learn these attributes or review them, that they're helpful as we think about our relationship to God. Because while it's very true that God doesn't need us, it's conversely true that we desperately need God. In fact, I want to say that we need God way more than we even imagine. And for the most part, it's, it's rather fascinating to observe humanity because most people live independent of God. The Bible describes unbelievers as without God in this world, Ephesians chapter 2. Unless something bad happens, something tragic. I just got a phone call last night from someone who said, please pray for me. I found out I have cancer. Now, this person hasn't been following God any other time. So as a Christian, what God wants me to do is cultivate a deeper dependence on him. Now, you're all out there going, amen, Brother Allen, preach it to those heathen. But I want to challenge you to think about something. I'm going to tell you how you can know whether you believe deeply that you need God. All you have to do is look at your prayer life. If you go days without prayer, you can talk all day long. But I'm going to tell you, I don't think you truly believe you need God. You're like, I went all day without talking to him, and I didn't die. I went all day without thanking him, and nothing happened. I know we're supposed to say, give me my daily bread, but I got bread. I know in him I live and move and have my being that, that he gives me breath and he keeps my heart beating, but my heart's been beating. And so there's a dangerous place that we can come, especially as comfortable Americans, to forget how desperately we need God. In fact, there's a beautiful analogy of this in the book of Revelation. The church of Laodicea comes to Jesus for their checkup. And before he reads them his diagnosis, they say to Jesus, we are rich and we have need of nothing. And Jesus goes, well, let me read my diagnosis. To a church, these are believers. You're poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. Literally, the church said, we need nothing. He says, could I weigh in on that? So, I think it's a good reminder to say, I need to be on my knees, thanking God, acknowledging him, not just treating him like the, the magic genie when things go wrong, and going, hey, get me out of this, God, but learning to cultivate a daily relationship where I, God, protect me, keep me from the evil one, provide for me. Lord, thank you for everything you do for me. Help me not to forget your benefits. Now, the second attribute of God we call his immutability. Again, these are things that he doesn't share with us because God does not change. In case you haven't learned this about life, ready? This is a big truth. People change, right? People change. People are always changing. Nobody's a perfect steady eddy. And because people change, most of us have been hurt at some point because somebody changed. You know, something as basic as this. Yesterday when I saw you, oh, great to see you. The next day, hey, how's it going? What's the matter? You know. <laughs> no, I don't, right? People change. People will disappoint you. Your spouse cannot be there perfectly. They're going to hurt you and disappoint you. Your parents are going to fail you. Your kids are not going to always be exactly what you had hoped. They change. And that's why we, we, we waste a lot of energy and we have great unhappiness when we trust that people aren't going to let us down because we're sinful. 
and we're mutable and we change. But God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. So it's a wonderful truth to go, God is steady as a rock. He won't change one bit. I just need to get to know him and throw myself on him and trust him. In fact, James says it this way. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down. Now look what he calls God, the father of lights. The father of lights. The reason he's calling God the father of lights here, he says there's no variation or shifting shadow. He's, he's actually thinking of the planets here. When, when God put the heavenly lights in space to rule the day and the night. It's really interesting. The very word planet comes from, oh, that, that wasn't what that drink was intended for, Marge. Thank you, though. We just have a little waterfall we're providing here, so a little background music. So you just kind of go with it. I'll take a drink while I'm here. New idea. Put the water underneath there. So, um, But think about this. So planet, the word planet came from a verb that meant to wander because there was a time when in ancient history, they used to think the planets wandered aimlessly until somebody figured out, wait a minute, these bad boys are orderly, organized. In fact, as astronomy studies went on, we can go 200 years from now, there's going to be an eclipse, right? So, so the Bible compares God to the father of lights. There's no change, there's no shifting shadow. There's, he's not going to miss the mark. He's not going to, well, what happened? Matter of fact, Believe it or not, you, you sang this a million times. You just forget. If you grew up in a church, right? Great is thy faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As you have been, you forever will be. And that's so good to know. And that's why I want to encourage you. Whatever you're clinging to other than God, let go of that and learn how to cling to God Cling to Jesus Christ because he's the only unchanging being who will never fail you. He'll never disappoint you. He's not just that guy that lived back then that did miracles and he's way up in heaven now. He's Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? So we thank God for our God that he's unchangeable and independent. Now, I want to move to, oh, I bet you I ruined this with water. Oh, no. Hey, how about that? You're like, wow, we're going to be here a while. Trust me, this isn't. <laughs> Some of you are going, dear Lord. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about just one communicable attribute as we close, and then we'll pick this up next week. The Bible reveals many attributes of God, but, but I find this one to be fascinating. On two occasions in the Bible, when we get to, 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 to see from the Bible what's going on up in heaven, there's something profound in the angelic realm. John, when he was caught up to heaven, and you can read this in Revelation 4, says the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings around and within, day and night, day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Now, now, now just think about that for a moment. Day and night. Now, if God consulted me, if we opened up a quadrinity, I would have said, why don't we have a rotating soundtrack of different attributes? So on Tuesdays, it'll be love, love, love. Thursdays, it'll be holy, holy. Fridays, it'll be sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. But God goes, please stop talking, Tom. Because for some reason, he has chosen that the angels, day and night, 
continually extol him for this particular attribute. Holy, holy, holy. Why? I don't want to go beyond Scripture and say, well, it must be the most important. But I think it would be safe to say that it's all-encompassing. And I want to close with a couple thoughts real quick about God's holiness. The word holiness does not originally start with a moral or ethical connotation. In other words, when we think of holiness, we're like, he's a holy man. He doesn't do bad stuff. Start with this. The word holy, kadesh in Hebrew, means to be set apart and unique. Okay? Now think about that. Set apart, unique. Set apart, unique. Set apart, unique. There's nothing like you. Oh, God, in all of your awesomeness, we're just little creatures. Holy, holy, holy. All of your perfections, all of your attributes. You're staggering, oh, God. Holy, holy, holy. But as a result of his uniqueness and his set-apartness from creation, the word holy also takes on a moral or ethical connotation. Because God is good and holy and perfect in all his ways, sin is very offensive to God. He hates all sin in every form, in act, attitude, nature. It, it, it deeply grieves him, it angers him, and he has purposed to eradicate all of it. The Bible says his eyes are too pure to approve evil. We, we tend to, to, to think, well, the things that offend God are like bad words and stuff. Every moment when we ignore God, every moment when we lead God out of our lives, that's rebellion, that's disobedience, that's godlessness. And the Bible teaches that we are in bad shape. Left to ourselves, he's holy. We're sinful. And it would be entirely just for a holy, perfect, awesome being to destroy all of us. But in the mercies of God, because he's not just holy, but he's also love, he sent Christ. And when Christ hung on that cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he quoted Psalm 22. The next phrase says this, but thou art holy. The reason Christ went up to that cross was so that you and I, sinners, could have a relationship with a holy God because the wrath we deserved was absorbed by Christ on the cross and he shed his blood. And so we dare not think of God as J.C. or the man upstairs, but this awesome holy being whom left to ourselves... We're pathetic, darkened, twisted beings, but he loves us anyway. And so the Apostle John said it this way in 1 John chapter 1. He says, I want you to have fellowship with us. We know God. We know his son, Jesus Christ. I want you to know him, he says, because if you have fellowship with God, your joy will be full. But this is the message, John says, that I've heard from him and I announce to you that God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. And I go... Gulp, even in my thoughts. So the rest of my life as a Christian, I realized that when I talk to God, I'm talking to a holy God. And when I say, Father, I come in Jesus' name, what I mean by that is, oh God, I thank you forever for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is only his precious blood that allows me to know that I am completely forgiven and that I can have a relationship with you. So the Apostle John went on to say this. He said, if we say that we have no sin, you're kidding yourself. 
But if we confess our sins, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins, and we can have fellowship with one another, and God is faithful and just to forgive us. So I don't want you to run out of here afraid of God. But I do want us all to go, I get it. And God, that causes me to realize that that cross will never grow old. That that cross will be more precious the longer I live. And that when I get to heaven, I'm going to fall down and say, you are worthy, O Lamb, who was slain because you shed your blood for me. Isn't it a blessing to know that our holy God sent his son? And I invite you to trust him, to love him, to worship him, to sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Though the eyes of sinful man your glory may not see. But by his grace and because of his son, we are forgiven, amen? We are washed in the blood of the lamb. So let's not live a life that mocks that. Let's not live a life that says, hey, I got my hell insurance. But let's live a life where we're on our knees speedily repenting and saying, Lord, I shouldn't have said that. Help me not to be like that. Change me, Lord. Because the Bible says, ultimately, God says, I want you to be holy because I'm holy. And I think I could speak for all of us. We're going to need lots of help. Amen? So let's pray. If you're here and God has spoken to your heart and you've been awakened to see that you need Christ, maybe you don't know him yet, but you want to know him, God is always calling people to himself. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I would invite you to just say to the Lord Jesus, if you do really want to have a relationship with God, just say, Father, I believe that Jesus died for me. Just say it in your heart. Father, I believe that Jesus shed his blood to forgive me. And I believe that only through your grace and through faith in Christ that I can know you. Forgive me. I come to the light now. I want to live in that light. And for the rest of us, Father, who have already been saved by your grace, help us, Father, to continually know you better, to praise you in the way that we live and with our lips, to rejoice even when things aren't going well in our lives, to bless the Lord, all that is within us. As we continue to study you and learn your attributes and your triunity, may we just marvel and behold our God we give you all the glory and pray that your word will transform us as we sit in your presence and worship our Lord Jesus. And anyone here who may have questions or have trusted Christ, I pray that they'll talk to someone before they leave. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Be in prayer for our church. And we'll see you all next week.